life lessons. We've been seeing them in the past sermons that have been based on Acts chapter 15 and the first part of Acts chapter 16. Specifically, we've seen uh, 14 life lessons in two previous sermons. This morning, I have seven more life lessons from the second missionary journey that the Apostle Paul and Silas went on. And there's seven more lessons based on Acts 16, 20 to 30. And so we're going to look at that, and I'm going to read Acts 16, 20 to 30. And I'd like you to follow along in God's word as I read. And they brought them to the magistrates and said, These men, being Jews, exceedingly troubled our city. And they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive and to observe. Then the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. 26. Suddenly, there was an earth, great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately, all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awaking from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. But Paul called with a loud voice saying, don't, don't harm yourself, for we're all here. Then he called for a light, ran in and fell down, trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? The first life lesson I'd like you to see from these verses is this, that opponents of the cross don't get the final say on religious liberties. Opponents of the cross do not get the last say when it comes to religious liberties. The jailer that night wasn't in charge of the padlocks, really. The Lord was. Opponents of the cross do not get the final say when it comes to religious liberties. A second life lesson, God is sovereign in every life. The Lord is constantly, meticulously weaving all of the fabric of our individual redeemed lives. And he's doing that weaving every hour of every day. When you're sleeping, he's weaving. When you're awake, He's weaving. Many of you may be familiar with this poem, but I want to share it. It's a poem by Benjamin Malassia Franklin, Just a Weaver. My life is but a weaving between the Lord and me. I cannot choose the colors he works steadily. Oft times he weaveth sorrow, and I, in foolish pride, forget he sees the upper and I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttles cease to fly shall God unroll the canvas and explain the reason why. 
The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. He knows, he loves, he cares. Nothing this truth can dim. He gives his very best to those who choose to walk with him. The weaver. And the weaving was going on for Paul and Silas. And we read about it. We're going to reread verses 25 to 30. What a scene this must have been. 25 to 30. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly, there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately, all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awaking from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. But Paul called with a loud voice saying, Do yourself no harm, for we're all here. Then he called for a light and ran in and fell down, trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? What a scene. An earthquake ravished prison, opened stocks and opened prison doors, loosened chains, unrestrained prisoners not taking off, and a near suicide. And what a question being asked in that most unusual setting. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? The jailer wasn't even in charge of himself. He knew he couldn't save himself. He knew he didn't have what Paul and Silas evidently had. He knew that he needed saving from his sins. And as I said, he knew that he couldn't save himself. And he knew that Paul and Silas themselves had already been saved from their sins so as to be so different, so different than any other prisoner he had ever guarded. God is sovereign over all lives. God was sovereign over the jailer's life. God was sovereign over Paul and Silas's lives. God was sovereign over all the other prisoners who were in jail at that particular time. God is sovereign over your lives. And that makes for a very soft pillow at night when you believe that. Life lesson three. Happy is the believer who doesn't strive to always be in control of all of his or her padlocks, in quotes. Paul and Silas were not in charge of the padlocks that held them in the stocks. They were not in charge of the padlocks that were on the cell, uh, cells that they were locked in, but God was. Happy is the believer who doesn't strive to always be in control of all of his or her padlocks and life details. It was Elizabeth Elliot who rightly observed Fear arises when we imagine everything depends on us. Fear arises 
when we imagine that everything depends on us because <laughs> we can't control everything. And when we feel out of control because we're relying on ourselves to be in control, it, gives us, it makes us scared. Are you fearful this morning? If you are, could it be that you have in those things that cause you fear that you have somehow figured that it all depends on you about those things? Your rent payment, your mortgage payment, your tenuous job position, your prodigal child, your troubled marriage, your singlehood. Could it be that fear arises in our hearts this morning because we are living, imagining as though everything depends on us? Happy is the believer who doesn't always strive to be in control of all of his or her padlocks. Life lesson four, saving belief is not faith in faith. And saving belief is certainly not faith in oneself. Saving belief is not faith in faith, and saving belief is certainly not faith in oneself. Verses 31 to 34. So they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes and immediately he and all his family were baptized. Now when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them and he rejoiced having believed in God with all his household. Saving belief is not belief or faith in faith. Saving belief is not faith in yourself. Saving belief is something other, and this is what it is. Saving belief is belief that the Lord Jesus Christ is who he claimed himself to be. Very God. You could go to the seven I am statements in your own Bible study. The seven I am statements which Jesus made recorded in the Gospel of John. Jesus Christ claimed to be very God without ambiguity, without fogginess, without indirectness. He directly claimed to be very God. That's why they picked up stones to stone him. They thought he was blaspheming. Saving belief believes the Lord Jesus is who the Lord Jesus claimed to be, God. Saving belief is something else. Saving belief is also the belief that the Lord Jesus did what he predicted he would do. Namely, died on the cross to pay for sins. Namely, was raised from the dead to justify those who would believe in him. You have saving faith when you believe Jesus Christ is very God. You believe that he did what he was predicted he would do, that he died in your place instead. Instead of you on the cross, he died the death that you deserve to die to give you the life you never could have earned, his life, eternal life. Saving belief believes that the Lord is who he said he is, and he did what he was predicted he would do. Romans 4.25, Christ 
who was delivered up to the cross because of our offenses. If we had no offenses, he would not have been delivered up to the cross. Christ, who was delivered up to the cross because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. If Jesus Christ's death and blood on the cross were not sufficient payment for your sins and mine, the Father would not have raised Christ from the dead. But God did raise his Son from the dead, which demonstrates judicially that Jesus Christ's finished work on the cross, the shedding of his blood, was propitiation, total satisfactory payment for sin debt. Saving faith believes that Jesus Christ is very God, as he claimed to be, and saving faith believes that Jesus Christ did, in fact, what he predicted he would do, which was to die in the cross and to be raised from the dead three days later. And it's these crucial truths of who Jesus is and of what Jesus has done, they are called the word of the Lord in verse 32. When they, then they spoke the word of the Lord to him, that Jesus Christ died on the cross, that God the Father raised him from the dead. Verse 32, then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who are in his house. And the believing of this word of the Lord is summarized in verse 34 as having believed in God. Verse 34. Now when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them and he rejoiced, having believed in God. Having believed what was said in the verses previous, the word of God, which by definition was the crucifixion of Christ and the resurrection of Christ from the dead. That's saving faith. Believing Jesus is who he claimed to be, very God. And believing that Jesus, in fact, accomplished and did what he predicted and the Old Testament predicted he would do. Namely, that he died on the cross. Sinless, he died for the sinners. And he was raised after being dead by his father to evidence, to prove. That the payment Christ made on the cross for sin was entirely accepted by the Father. Nothing should be added to it, nothing. Nothing should be added to what Jesus did. Nothing can be added to what Jesus did. He did it all. It is finished. Transactional, commercial term. It is finished. Paid in full. Through the blood of Christ. Life lesson five. Faith is only as good as the object upon which it rests. Let me give you an example to maybe teach this. Faith is only as good as the object upon which it rests. Let's say an opened parachute when you jump out of an airplane with one strapped on your back. Faith, secondly, faith is only as good as the person upon which it rests. So in this analogy, the person, you have to have faith in the person who packed the parachute. That they packed it properly. You have to have faith in the parachute, but you also have to have faith in the person who packed the parachute. Going on. Faith is only as good as the work of the person upon which the faith rests. You have to believe in the parachute 
the object. You have to believe in the person who packed it. And you have to believe that the ripcord mechanism designed by those that engineered this parachute was done properly. And that when the cord is ripped, the chute opens. You risk your life on it. Saving faith places full and complete trust on the Lord Jesus Christ's crosswork and on his person and full and complete trust on his plan of salvation. The Lord Jesus Christ, salvation gift, his person and his cross work, of course, are all entirely trustworthy. And so we trust Christ in all three ways. When we come to saving faith, our faith is placed squarely on the Lord Jesus Christ and only on the Lord Jesus Christ as it pertains to his salvation gift offered, as it pertains to his person as very God, sinless, and as it pertains to the cross work he did, paying for sin in full. Verse 34. Now when... He had brought them into his house. He set food before them and rejoiced, having believed in God with all his household. All those who were saved in the jailer's household must have understood for themselves and believed for themselves all three of these, that the salvation gift of Christ was for them, that the person of Christ was utterly unique, Humanity fused together with deity and they all had to understand and believe that what Jesus did on the cross was entirely necessary and adequate for them to be forgiven. Now, if there were babies in the household at that time or little infants, would they have understood those things? No, they couldn't. So those in the church of Jesus Christ who say, that's a text to say that little children automatically, they would say with uh, baptism in those, in those kind of settings, that their original sin is washed away and that they go to heaven based on that. But no one can have saving faith for someone else, right? To be saved, whatever your age, you must understand sin Substitution and faith. And some children can understand those things very young. I've told you before, I trusted Jesus to be my Savior. I was four and a half years old. I am not a genius. But somebody explained about sin to me in a way I could understand. And I knew I had some. Someone explained to me as a boy of four that Jesus died in my place. And I believed it. Someone explained to me at four, at four years of age that Jesus offers you the forgiveness of your sins and a home in heaven one day if you will trust him and only him to be your savior. And my parents tell me that I ran from my garage in the Child Evangelism Fellowship uh, backyard club that was in our own garage. I ran almost through the glass screen door with joy to tell my mom who was home, dad was working, that I trusted Jesus to be my savior. I understood sin, substitution, and faith. And I was young. 
Verse 34, one more time. Now, when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them, and he rejoiced, having believed in God with all of his household. So, life lesson six. When your children are young, start explaining some things to them. Start explaining who Jesus is. When your kids are young, explain to them what Jesus has done. Explain to them the problem of sin. They can understand the problem of sin if you explain it in their terms. When they're young, explain to your children the solution for sin is substitution. And when your children are young, explain to them how one exercises faith in Jesus. How you do that. And then, when you've started explaining who Jesus is and what Jesus has done and the problem of sin and the solution of substitution and the exercise of faith, keep on explaining it to them. Persistently, creatively, prayerfully, regularly. Don't count on Sunday school or Awana or grandma or grandpa to do that for your kids. You do it. You know Christ. Explain when your children are young who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, the problem of sin, the solution of substitution, the exercise of faith in Jesus. Keep explaining those things to your children when they're very young because very young children, if it's properly explained to them and the Holy Spirit opens the understanding of their minds and their hearts, little children can understand what sin is. They can understand what substitution is. And they can understand what faith is. Thirty-five to forty. And when it was day, the magistrates sent the officers saying, Let those men go. So the keeper of the prison reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Now therefore depart and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us openly, uncondemned Romans, and have thrown us into prison, and now do they put us out secretly? No, indeed. Let them come themselves and get us out. And the officers told these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. I guess they were. Then they came And pleaded with them and brought them out and asked them to depart the city. So they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they had seen the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. Lesson seven is that it isn't always wrong to demand your legal rights. The scriptures tell us in the first Corinthians we aren't to take a brother or a sister to court and sue one another. So there is a time when believers who are following Jesus willingly give up some legal rights. They don't sue a brother or a sister in Christ and take them to court. But there is another time when it is right to demand your legal rights. Paul says, you're going to let us go having broken Roman law because we're Roman citizens, beaten us in public and imprisoned us without a trial? 
And you're just going to let us wander off in secret and you don't get called on any of this? No. You send, that, send the magistrates over here. We're Romans. Paul wasn't wrong in demanding his legal rights in that, set, in that situation. And what happened was when Paul did demand his legal right as a Roman citizen, it bought him more time to have an unhurried and a personally encouraging goodbye to Lydia and her household. It isn't always wrong to demand your legal rights. So now we come to the end of seven life lessons, and as I did last week, I'm going to review them quickly and ask you this question. Which of the seven life lessons would the Holy Spirit have you apply this week? They're all important, but which one do you think the Holy Spirit would have you work on with his help this week? The first life lesson we've seen in this sermon is that opponents of the cross don't get the final say on religious liberties. If you chose this particular life lesson to live out this week, that would mean this week I suggest you establish a regular time of prayer for the persecuted church. You could use the Open Doors webpage to find how to pray. www.opendoors.org Maybe that's how the Holy Spirit wants you to put this sermon into practice. To establish a regular time when you pray for the persecuted church using Open Doors website to help you. Or maybe the Holy Spirit wants you to apply life lesson two. The God of is sovereign over every life. What would happen this week if you kept a sovereign, sovereignty-spotting journal and for one week, starting today, you look, wrote in your journal every time you saw a glimpse of God's sovereignty in your life? <laughs> I'll give you an example of God's sovereignty that would go into my spotting sovereignty journal. When we were off the island on vacation, I took my iPhone snorkeling with me, which isn't a good idea. And it was submerged in the seawater, two feet of water before I saw it in my dive bag, for about 30 seconds, a minute. So I read on the Apple site that these phones, or some of them are rated to uh, 20 feet depth for half an hour. Well, I think that was... Tested with fresh water, not salt water. So this iPhone that went swimming with me, put it in rice and everything you're supposed to do. Pull it out and it's working for a while, but then the screen goes green. And when the screen goes green, it's not a good thing. So this didn't work anymore. So we're sitting on the dock at Hatchet Bay to catch a ferry back to Nassau, and we're, Beth and I are talking, and we're, we're talking about, should I replace my iPhone because it's a very vital part of how I do my work? And we concluded that we should probably order a refurbished iPhone right there in our car off Amazon, and we did. But in the course of picking refurbished iPhones, she, Beth said to me, do you want to get extra memory on your phone to what you had on the one that went swimming? And I went, hmm. So, well, she says, only $30 more to get double the memory. I said, okay, all right, let's do it. Here's what happened. 
I thought I was buying an iPhone for me. Turned out I was buying an iPhone for a dear brother in Christ in this congregation. Let me explain. So when I get back to Nassau with my green screen, I go to a cell phone repair place. He goes, I don't think the whole thing's shot. He says, I think it's the screen. Let me try to fix the screen. And I'll check the motherboard. So I go away, and sure enough, he was right. The screen was shot, but the motherboard was unaffected. So now I've ordered a phone that I don't need. So I'm over doing some ministry a few days after that, and a brother comes up to me, and he says, Pastor Rob, I saw you put an e-blast out that you had to buy an iPhone because your other one got damaged. Would you help me get an iPhone from Amazon? Yeah. What would you like on your iPhone? I like it to have double memory. So I explained to my brother, you know, the features of the iPhone and what I had to pay for it. He goes, I'll take it. That's how God works sometimes. He's sovereign over that brother's life, over my life. And here I was picking an iPhone to buy from Amazon on the dock at Hatchet Bay, and I thought I was buying it for me, but God was steering me to buy it for him, and he paid me for it. This week, could you begin a spotting God's sovereignty journal? And every time you spot God in control of your life, write down what you saw. Lesson three, maybe you want to do lesson three. Happy is the believer who doesn't always strive to be in control. This week, if you did this, you could identify three things to stop trying to control by you in favor of accepting the Lord's control over those three things. Watch what happens when you tell the Lord, item three, you've got full control in my understanding. Item two, you've got full control in my understanding. Item three, you've also got full control in my understanding. I'm taking my hands off those things. Work as you will. Watch what happens. Life lesson four. Saving belief is not faith in faith, and saving belief is certainly not faith in oneself. This week, you could pray and you could push to have one conversation with someone about what saving faith is. And in the course of having that conversation, you could point out to that person, well, Saving faith is not belief in faith, and saving faith is not belief in yourself, but saving faith is belief in Christ. Here's who he says he is. Here's what he's done. Can you trust him, only him, to get right with God? Life lesson five, if you pick this one, this is the lesson that's kind of lengthy. Faith is only as good as the object upon which it rests. Faith is only as good as the person upon which it rests. Faith is only as good as the work of the person upon which it rests. And the Lord Jesus Christ's salvation gift and his personhood and his cross work are all absolutely trustworthy. What would you do if you went that, put that into practice this week? You could pray and you could push. Hear the expression? Pray and push. Don't just push. Pray and push. When you pray for something, be willing to work to see that happen. Pray and push to explain Christ's salvation gift, his person and his cross work to one person. You would be surprised how many persons in the Commonwealth of the Bahamas don't have a biblically clear understanding of those things. You'd be surprised. 
Life lesson six, if you pick that one. When your child is young, start explaining who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, the problem of sin, the solution of substitution, and the exercise of saving faith in Christ. If you pick that one this week, you could pray and push to explain these things to one child. Maybe that child lives under your roof. It's your son or your daughter. Maybe that child lives under your roof. It's your grandchild. Maybe that child is not under your roof, but at Awana. Maybe that child is a friend of a friend's child. A child you could talk to this week about who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, the problem of sin, the solution of substitution, and the exercise of faith in Jesus. And if you pick Life Lesson 7, the last one, the one that says, it isn't always wrong to demand your legal rights. This week, you could prayerfully determine if you have rightly or wrongly been demanding your legal rights. It's possible to do both as a believer. It's possible to, in a right way, demand your legal rights. And it's also possible possible in a wrong way to demand your legal rights. Sort that out this week. Are you thinking of legal rights? Have you been for some time? Can you have the Holy Spirit and the scriptures evaluate for you if the claiming of your legal rights is proper in the sight of God or improper in the sight of God? The Bible is so practical. Let's pray. Precious Lord Jesus, thank you for Paul and Silas's commitment to the truth and their commitment to obey you, to travel the ancient Mediterranean basin, to share the gospel, and to plant churches. We pray, Lord, that as a local church and believers in Christ together, brothers and sisters in the Lord, I pray that we would, by your Spirit guiding us and helping us, pick one life lesson from today's sermon and to put it into practice with your help. To the end, that we become more like Jesus. To the end, that the gospel would have a hearing. To the end, that glory would come to your name. These things we ask expectantly in Jesus' name. Amen.